Good morning, family. How's everybody doing? Good. All right. Hey, we are several weeks into our current series. Like Veronica said, the series title is Relational. And uh, Veronica stated that our goal in this series is to graciously and humbly counter cultural and personal confusion with gospel clarity by looking to our Father's Word and by submitting to His good design for our relationships. That's what we're really focusing in on. Now, last week, we considered our father's good design as it relates to men and marriage, learning that the Imago Dei is most powerfully expressed when husbands sacrificially and gladly use their words, their presence, and their strength for their wives' joy. Ladies, it's your turn. This morning, we turn our attention to our father's good design as it relates to women, marriage, and the Imago Dei. And I'm glad you laughed because in hour number one, there was actually an audible moan. And uh, it's a great way to start the sermon out. It's just wonderful. Um, So wives, here you go. Summary sentence at the top, just like we did for the guys. Uh, Wives, the Imago Dei in you is most beautifully displayed when in submission to the only perfect God-man, Jesus, you partner with and submit to an imperfect man, your husband, using your words, your presence, and your strength for your family's good and the good of others. Now, I have a problem with writing run-on sentences, so let me just say that out loud one more time for you, okay? Wives, the Imago Dei in you is most beautifully displayed when in submission to the only perfect God-man, Jesus, you partner with and submit to an imperfect man, your husband, using your words, your presence, and your strength for your family's good and the good of others. Now, last week, I said a few words to the guys about our posture as we entered into that sermon. Uh, Ladies, I would like to do the same thing for you as we begin. So may I offer you three encouragements this morning as we get started? The first encouragement is this. Please don't compare yourself against other women. As we work through the text this morning, your heart may very well be tempted uh, to begin comparing yourself against other wives, either in this room or just other wives that you, that you know of. But comparison is deadly and soul-crushing. Uh, now, on Friday, when I finished my sermon, um, I emailed my notes to all of our elders' wives and a few others. So there were at least nine women who were reading these notes. And I told them, I, I want your help. I want you to read this and I want you to push back. I want you to offer clarity. I want you to offer insight. Um, I need your help with this. And um, man, I got such exceptionally helpful and insightful input. So ladies, I want to thank you. And uh, you will hear several quotes. I won't identify who those ladies were when I quote them, but I did ask for their permission and I'll, I've incorporated some of what they said. But one of them wrote, as it, when, it, when, it, when it comes to comparing, she wrote, or she wrote, I remembered something a friend shared with me from a podcast about comparing. We can connect with people or we can compare ourselves with people, but we cannot do both. And she continues, she said, I think that captures how, powerfully, or how powerful and potentially harmful constant comparing can be. It's not relational, nor is it life-giving. 
So ladies, I just want to encourage you as we get started to ask the Spirit to help you resist the temptation to compare yourself against other wives. Second, um, I want to encourage no self-condemnation. Where our Father's Word exposes a rebel tendency in you, or a weakness, or a need for growth, or even a wound in your, in your soul, um, thank the Spirit for His conviction. Run to Jesus for mercy and help and healing. Uh, but self-condemnation is death for your soul. Conviction from the Spirit always leads to life. Run to Jesus in those moments. And third, ladies, I would just, I want to say this, where culture and personal conviction may collide with Christ's word this morning, ask the Spirit to help your heart gladly trust Jesus and yield to, to him as your creator and good king. Basically, what we're saying is as followers of Jesus, we believe it is always Christ over culture and Christ over personal uh, conviction. I'd also like to say something about my posture. I realize some of what we encounter in the Word this morning will stand in stark contrast to some cultural norms, maybe some family patterns, and probably even some personal convictions that you hold. I want to serve you well in this, so I want you to know that up front my intent is to love you and to be humble and to be gracious. I want to encourage you, but first and most, I want to honor Christ, right? I want to honor Him. Thankfully for me, these aims are not in conflict with each other. Um, the way I will honor Christ and serve you well is the same, simply by openly and honestly and humbly setting before all of us our Father's good and beautiful design so we can look at it and spin it around and look at it from another angle and consider how good to, He is to us in His creative design. But just please know I love you, um, I love you deeply. I have deep respect for every one of you ladies, and I have an exceptionally high view of the sacred calling that Jesus has created you for and called you into in the Imago Dei. I, just, I want you to know that's my posture. Now, to the husbands, I gave your wife just a 30-second chit-chat before we started last week of how maybe what her posture should be towards you. So guys, um, be quick to give grace. Work overtime today. Really, you should be working overtime all the time to affirm and encourage your wife. Be gentle. Um, if you missed last week's sermon, my encouragement to you would be, before you talk to your wife about what you hear today, go back and listen to that sermon online first. Um, and keep entrusting your wife to Jesus, just as she entrusts you to her. Jesus loves her more. He's uh, more gentle in her, his pursuit of her. He has better aims for her than you do. Um, and his motives for wanting her to grow and change are pure. Your motives for wanting her to grow and change are sometimes noble, but mixed with a lot of selfish motive too, okay? And just one last thing, guys. For the next hour, not that we'll take an hour, but close, um, let's exercise dominion over our body language. Be exceptionally aware of what you're doing with your eyes and your eyebrows and the timing of the arm around the shoulder and the shoulder pat. Like you're in a public setting. So like when you hear stuff that you're like, man, this is good for my wife. I'm just encouraging you not to express that physically while we're in the room together. Uh, to even No matter how pure and loving you may seem it to be, the timing may just not be in your favor. Other people will be looking. Like, just don't do it. And on the drive home, let's just practice this. Go, go like this. Guys, just guys, just the husbands. Okay, go like this. 
That's 10 and 2. Just keep them there, eyes on the road for the ride home. Unless she initiates some conversation. Like, unless you've rehearsed some really life-giving stuff to say about it, just rehearse ahead of time. Like, just rehearse. When I went to boot camp, like, 20, 21 years ago, they had this little ditty, left hand, left knee, right hand, right knee, eyes front. Like, you could practice that during the sermon this morning, and that'd probably be a life-giving thing to do. All right. So we're going to pray. Um, and ask for the Spirit's help, and then we're going to read some passages. I'll read them publicly. You can follow along. Uh, I'm not going to give you the specific references. You'll see them on the screen. We'll hit the references as we go. There will be some Genesis, some Ephesians, and some First Peter, okay? So let's pray. I'll read, and we'll do work. Father, we submit ourselves to you, recognizing we're created by you and for you, recognizing that we, we always need your help. There is no time in which we don't need your help. We need it now as we approach your word. Father, give us humble hearts, receptive hearts. Um, encourage us through your word. Spirit, please bring conviction for all of us, for men and women. Point us to Jesus. Encourage him to run to us. Crush our comparisons, our self-condemnations in the men, their impure motives maybe for wives to change. Father, that we would love you as we rehearsed from Matthew earlier this morning with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and that we would love our spouses if we are married with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as well. Help us to do these things this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. We're going to begin in Genesis 1. Here's verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, uh, that word there is mankind, like men and women. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. Okay, then flip your page. Now we're in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, um, so chapter 2 kind of revisits the creation account. We just heard men and women were created, right? But it's just from a different perspective, so we're zooming back a little bit. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone, so I will make him a helper fit for him. So there's a creation narrative. Now, over to Genesis 3.16, if you're familiar with the Genesis storyline, you know there was creation and then the fall. There was a rebellion and some, so, some profound relational consequences from that rebellion. Uh, the consequences that relate to marriage are in Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now listen, here it is. Your desire shall be for or contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay? Now I'm flipping to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the chapter where Paul talks about marriage. Therefore, be imitators of God. There's some Imago Dei language. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. This is what we're talking about, both husband and wife, walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, down to 18. This verse is gonna seem a little out of place, but there's a reason we're reading it. And do not get drunk with wine. We're not going there today. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Everything we're gonna talk about, you must have the Spirit in you and working in you um, to live in the ways that we're talking about. The Spirit gives life. Verse 21, okay? Submitting to, as we're filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, submitting to one another out of, this is important, reverence for Christ. There's the root. Verse 22, wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Down to verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I'm flipping over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes in verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they don't, they're not loving Jesus, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. All right, summary sentence one more time, and we'll do our work. Wives, the imago day in you is most beautifully expressed when in submission to the only perfect God-man, Jesus, you partner with and you submit to that imperfect man, your husband, using your words, your presence, and your strength for the good of others, for the, for the good of your family, and for the good of others. That's a long sentence, so let's go ahead and break it down this morning into three parts, and that, that, those parts will be what we can hang the rest of the sermon on. Part one, beautiful design created, okay? Part two, beautiful design broken, and part three, beautiful design being recreated, restored. It's in process. So beautiful design created, broken, and being restored. Here's part one. Ladies, like men, Scripture is exceptionally clear. This is no gray area. This is black and white. You can close your hands around this. It's not up for debate. You bear fully the image of God. You bear fully the image of God as a woman. The author of Genesis, where we began our reading this morning, intentionally arranges the lines and the words of 127 to emphasize that both men and women are created in the Imago Dei. He writes... God created man or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And here's the emphasis, male and female in the Imago Dei, he created them. So men, these verses tell us you fully bear the image of God. Contrary to what you might hear culturally, you do not need a woman to fulfill that in you. You bear fully the image of God. You do need something, someone, and what you need is Christ. Christ completes, recreates, restores the Imago Dei in you. Ladies, same truth is, is, is there for you as well. You also fully bear the Imago Dei, the image of God. Listen, you do not need a man to complete that image in you. You do not need a man to complete that image in you. Uh, however, like men, you need Christ. You need Christ to complete that, to recreate that in you, and to satisfy your soul. Now, while this is true, though, for both men and women, in kindness and for our good, the Father purposefully created men and women the same but different to complement each other. Now, not complement with an I, though you should. We're talking about complement with an E, right, to complete something. So we could say it this way, women are just like men, but different. Women are just like men, but different. In Genesis 2.18, we read the author say, it's not good. Uh, these are God's words. It's not good that the man should be alone, so I will make him a, a helper fit for him. Now, we'll talk about that word helper in a moment, but for now, let's just focus on the words fit for him. The idea of that phrase is that Eve was created just like Adam. Uh, instead of saying fit for him, 
Uh, you could just as well say Eve matched Adam or Eve corresponded to Adam or better yet, Adam was just like what God had placed in front of him. The focus of this phrase is on the equality of Adam and Eve, of men and women at large as image bearers of God. Scholars, for you scholarly people who are reading all the books, scholars would call this ontological equality. You have the same essence and nature, full personhood for men and women. For normal people like me, uh, well, normal might be a stretch, for not-so-scholarly people like me, we would simply say, look, men and women are created equal in personhood, um, in value, in worth, in dignity. No distinction there. But now as Christians, we need to stop and ask the question, why can we make that claim? Why are men and women the same, equal in worth and dignity and value? Why? Well, the reason as followers of Jesus is we believe this creation narrative that because both men and women fully bear the imago Dei that God stamped on them, they are equal in every way. That is the reason why, the imago Dei. But we have to keep pressing in. While Adam and Eve were the same, they were different too. They were different in design, right? I mean, this was super obvious as they stood in front of each other for the first time on their wedding day, the father had just officiated and Adam and Eve both are awestruck by the unveiled magnificence, the kindness of what their, their father um, had given to them through the gift of each other. Many of you have experienced that moment, and it is a beautiful moment. That is what uh, they experienced, and those differences in design were on full display in a very life-giving way. Adam, we know, was created first, and he was given the responsibility to represent God in a prophetic way, in a priestly way, and in a, in a kingly way. We explored that cultural mandate last week. Then, after God had created Adam and put him to work, God created Eve and said, Adam, here is your helper for, what I have, for the purpose for which I've created. Here's your helper. And this word helper points to a God-given difference in roles. So the father creates Eve, gives Eve to Adam and says to him, hey, Eve is going to help you carry out your responsibility. Adam, son, you love her, you care for her, you serve her, you enjoy her, and you lead her. You lead her. You lead her in the work that I have created you for. You work together. You're partners in this. You're co-equal partners in this. But Adam, son, she's created for you. This is my gift to you. Uh, she's created for you to partner with you, to support you, to help you carry out the responsibilities I've given you. And this design, son, is for your good. But it's not just for your good. Like, it's for her good, too. This is, this is for your wife's good. And when you both embrace the Imago Dei and the roles and the designs I've created you into, it's not only good for you, son, and for you, daughter. It's good for your community and your family and everybody around you. And it will put the full glory of God on display. Paul actually restates this a little bit in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians. Here's 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 9. He writes, Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then in, in, in verse 3, a little bit earlier in the chapter, he writes this statement. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. 
and the head of Christ is God. Now, here's what I want us to see in the creation narrative and in what Paul just restated in 1 Corinthians 11. The difference of roles in the marriage relationship is not a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion. The difference in our roles, the call to leadership and submission, is not a part of the curse. It's not a part of the consequence. It's a part of God's creative design. It's not a social or cultural construct. It's not an attempt at religious oppression of women. It's not a Western idea. It's not an Eastern idea. It's not a feeble attempt to to perpetuate a patriarchy. It's not insecure men attempting to, quote, keep women in their place. It is simply our father's beautiful design, which he crafted for his son's good, for his daughter's good, and for the good of all mankind. And he wraps it up and he gives it to Adam and Eve as a gift. It is a good, good, beautiful thing. Hey, we also need to hear this, ladies, wives, as helpers, as helpers, right? We read that in Genesis. You are not less than your husbands in any way. Rather, the language that God chooses to use here indicates that the person who fills this sacred, God-given role of helper is an indispensable partner. That's really what the, the sense of the Hebrew word behind helper is. It would be better to just say she has been created to be an indispensable partner in representing God with you for the good of other people. Now, I get it. Even though we, we say that and we equate the word helper with indispensable, indispensable partner, uh, ladies, I imagine that some of you still are not terrifically excited about that particular title, even when we say helper um, means indispensable partner. So let me just encourage you with this. Ladies, did you know that the word helper is actually a title that God the Father gives to himself many, 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 many times throughout scripture to describe his relationship with his own people. Here's just one example. I mean, God's people were familiar with this title. They called him by this title. Psalm 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. Now, some, some people naively and foolishly, mistakenly and tragically would, would argue, well, look, you're created to be a helper. Wrapped up in that is some sense of inferiority or less than. Well, how foolish is that for a number of reasons? But here's a primary reason. God himself calls himself a helper, puts himself in relationship with you, you're the helped one, he's the helper. Let me ask, who's inferior in that relationship? Not the helper, right? So that's just a foolish thing to even try to say. It's a foolish place to go. You're not less than. You're an indispensable partner in the work that God has created for uh, your husband and for you. You're equal partners in this. Ladies, can I just say, this is absolutely incredible. I mean, when you joyfully and willingly embrace this aspect of God's creative design for you, this becomes one of the most beautiful expressions of the Imago Dei. Wives, this expression of the Imago Dei is yours. It belongs to you in the context of marriage in a way that it has not been given to your husband and in a way that he cannot express. It's your beautiful expression. And ladies, that's sacred. The Father gave that to you as a gift and entrusted it to you. It's what you're created for. It's part of what it means to embrace the Imago Dei in you. Another one of our elders' wives who uh, went over my notes and gave me some, some, just some great feedback um, observed on this point. She said, 
Our culture argues that we need to prove our value, ladies, by not complimenting our husbands, but by matching or exceeding their capabilities. And yet, on the other hand, our culture argues that we can prove our value by receiving the affirmation of men uh, for our worth. She writes, both of these lies are really hard for women to recognize because they are so deeply interwoven into our culture. But this truth that our value is the imago Dei, our inherent value as an image bearer of God is the source of what puts to death this desire to earn our value in these ways that the world tells us to. And it's only here, she writes, that I can stop striving to become something, um, quote, more than, as if there is something more than or needs to be something more than, which really denigrates the word helper and the design that God has for you. There's not something more than or better than. It's beautiful. And she said, it's here that I can stop striving to become something more, quote, than a helper and recognize the value in what God created me to bear in the Imago Dei as a wife. That's a great observation. Guys, our Father's design and creation to include the complementary design and roles of men and women, particularly in marriage, are life-giving. So when a husband and wife are both living in submission to Jesus, there is nothing more beautiful than the Imago Dei expressed in concert by husband and wife. And here's what it looks like. It looks like a husband who expresses sacrificial servant leadership for his wife's good and joy, willing to die to himself for the good of his wife, matched by a wife who willingly and gladly partners with her husband to represent God for the good of others, submitting to his God-given leadership in the home. Okay, that's, that is God's beautifully created design. But we know from the creation account, we know from Genesis, that beautiful design was broken in the rebellion. And there were some profound consequences that have trickled down through all of humanity that affect you still to this day. Pain was introduced to marriage. An undercurrent of tension began to flow, eroding away what were once the steady shores of Christ-like servant leadership on one side of this river and glad-hearted partnership and submission on the other side of the river. And there was a river there between those banks where a river of harmony and unity and peace once flowed, and it was life-giving, life-giving. But that river... Well, the shores had been replaced. Instead of selfless, servant-hearted leadership, selfish, overbearing, self-serving leadership, and rather than an embracing of the partnership and a submission, a, a rejection of that, these both were cursed, and the river is replaced by a rocky, uneven river bending towards hostility. Guys, experience is not a good place to start from in terms of like proving a point or making a point. Um, But those of you who are married know that there are two rivers. And in your marriages, probably, you have spent a lot of time in that rocky or river where the the shores, the banks have been eroded and replaced by rebel tendencies rather than embracing the Imago Dei design that God has given us. We know there's something better. Now, these consequences are explained in Genesis 3.16. We read it. It says, to the woman, he said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. Now, some of your Bibles might say that your desire shall be for your husbands. So you're thinking, that doesn't sound bad at all. Like, what are you talking about? Curse, like my desire is for my husband. 
So why does your version, why do some versions say contrary to? Well, hopefully if yours reads for your husband, it has an asterisk. If, if your editors of your version were faithful, they put an asterisk and down at the bottom of the page, they put a substitute word and the substitute word is contrary to because that is the sense of that word and it fits the context. And let me show you why. Turn the page, look at Genesis 4-7. This sentence is, it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible open. This is identical wording in the Hebrew. And this is crazy. Like this word picture, this, this is crazy. It says, sin is crouching at the door. What would be crouching at a door? A predator, like some predatory thing, right? Just an animal. Sin is crouching at the door. And what? Its desire is contrary to you. It wants to eat you up. It wants to destroy you, right? Same, same words, that's the better sense. That is the sense of what um, is being explained in the curse in Genesis 3. So he, guys, let, let me break it down, ladies. Eve, the father says, ladies, the father says to you, you're going to have this tension in your heart because you'll love him. I mean, at least once upon a time you loved him. You said yes. You said yes. There was a reason you said yes, right? There's, there's love there somewhere. There's desire. Um, you'll want him to love you. You desire his love. You desire some, you want initiative from your husband. You, that's synonymous with leadership. You want him to step out and take the lead. You don't want to have to tell him, I need you to do this. I need you to pursue me. I want you to pursue me. You just want him to do it. That's what you want. But because of the fall, because of sin, you're going to wrestle with emotions that are contrary to your husband's God-given role. You will, you will at times want to control him. You will at times want even to dominate him. You will want to even usurp his rule or uh, his God-given role of responsibility, or you will want to ex exercise complete independence from him at times. You will in moments reject his leadership attempts. Um, there will be an undercurrent of resentment in your heart towards him. His shortcomings will, will loom large. You will be tempted to keep score in the ways that he is not measuring up to the Imago Dei in him. Joyful submission will be a struggle. And forget joyful submission. The idea of it will be a struggle, almost repulsive sometimes or many times. And forget submission. Forget submission for a minute. This willing partnership that we, we read about in Genesis, willing, like a willing, glad-hearted partnership with this guy that you said to, yes to once upon a time, will be hard fought. Another woman in our church family, one of the elder's wives, um, shared this very personal confession. And she wrote, um, and I, I did ask if I could share this. She wrote, Naturally, I struggle with this God-given role to submit to my husband's leadership and be his helper more than your average girl. And she says, why? She says, fears make my heart want to control my situation or my husband, which then leads to me attempting to control him. And then she writes this line. She says, I think the heart of submission for a wife is turning to Jesus intentionally in prayer entrusting their husband to Jesus, especially in these difficult moments. Another one of our elders' wives wrote this. She said, you know, maybe a point of beautiful design broken or relational tension worth mentioning is a wife's tendency to nag at her husband in the absence of his Imago Dei leadership. And she writes, 
and its use in attempting to stir up leadership in a husband having the opposite and distancing effect in the relationship as the initiative is drained from his soul. Do you know the writer of Proverbs agrees with her? Like she was just restating what the author of Proverbs wrote a long time ago. This is Proverbs 21.9. He writes, it is better to live in a corner of a housetop on the roof, on the roof, than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And then later in the chapter, he writes it a little bit differently, maybe a little more aggressively. He says, it is better to live in a desert land. Nothing lives in a desert, guys. Like things, die, things go to the desert to die. And he's writing, it's better to live where you die. Just let that sink in a little bit. Than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. So this, this, this elder's wife who, who, who had given me that initial thought continues. She says, on the flip side, submitting to and showing respect, create the space for my husband to lead, which is our desire. And I've learned just straight up to ask him two questions. One, what is a challenge or obstacle to you leading our family? What's a challenge or obstacle that you face? And listening. And then the follow-up question, okay, Babe, what can I do to help you lead our family? And then running with the answers to those questions rather than nagging at him to be the leader that God has created him to be. And ladies, I just want to say this because this really impacts your partnership and your heart, the way you feel about submission. Rather than being the husband you dreamed of, um, I, I don't even need to tell you this. I know you, I don't need to tell you this, but I, just, I need to say it publicly, maybe for the benefit of our guys. Um, your husband's really going to struggle in his role too because of the same curse that we read about in Genesis 3 where it, where it says he shall rule over you. Guys, check this out. The word rule in this sentence is not the term used normally to describe a husband's Christ-like love and servant-hearted and selfless leadership of his wife that's good and healthy and life-giving. This actually is a word that is normally used, you ready for this? Of a dictator, of a monarchy where there is a heavy-handed person running the show with selfish aim. It's, it's, it's a word reserved for rulers who tend toward uncaring use of their authority rather than a kind and considerate leadership. There will be moments where he tends to be harsh. There will be words and moments where he tends to be unloving. He will, you will seem to feel, and he will be even uncaring. Guys, what is all this telling us? Men, husbands, wives, you're gonna need a ton of grace a ton of grace in your marriage. Adam and Eve's rebellion from God's kind kingly rule and their rejection of his beautiful design brought these consequences. The fall introduced pain and distortion into God's beautiful design of marriage. But Jesus comes for us in that brokenness, calling us out of the wilderness of rebellion, recreating the Imago Dei in us, tearing down that wall of separation at the cross and calling us back to Eden, back to that life-giving river, back to God's beautiful design for marriage. So let's go there. We saw beautiful design created. We got a sense of beautiful design broken and how that expresses itself relationally. Uh, Let's move towards the restoration. Paul talks about this restoration, this rescue, 
um, this recreation in his letter to the Ephesians. Actually, Paul talks about it everywhere. He puts a pen on paper, right? Paul was all about this. And in fact, in his chapter on marriage, we see Paul calling us back to Eden, back to the Imago Dei, back to this good design, even before he starts talking about marriage, right? We read it. Let's just point it out. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. That's Imago Dei language, right? That's, he's talking about re, being recreated in the image. Be imitators of God as beloved or deeply loved children. Ladies, you are the Father's deeply loved daughters in Christ. And because you are, he is restoring in you and recreating in you the Imago Dei so that you can be an imitator of God the Father and walk in love. He, be encouraged because he, the Father is rescuing you from the consequences of Eden and recreating you this beautiful Imago Dei that you have been given as a gift. Verse two says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ladies, in your struggle to love your husband well, you'll never love him perfectly. You'll never partner with him perfectly. Just we, we, we were honest about your husband's shortcomings last week. Let's just be honest. No perfect wife, like no perfect partnership, no pure motive ever expressed at any time, like always just tainted a little bit. However, Jesus is actively working in you to recreate that Imago Dei. Never stop looking to Jesus. He's your hope in this. And verse 18, I know it feels a little out of place, but it's not. Uh, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But rather than being, Paul could have used anything other than wine. He chose wine. Anything that controls you, your emotions, your desires, your will, uh, alcohol, fill in the blank, whatever it is that controls you. As a follower of Jesus, we, we strive to identify those and crush them by the strength of the Spirit and submit ourselves to the Spirit so that we can be filled with Him or controlled by, them, by Him. So ladies, here's the good news. The Spirit will produce in you what feels impossible for you in your flesh right now to make happen. And what specifically is that? Joyful partnership is possible through the Spirit. Joyful, glad-hearted, listen, willing, willing submission is possible. And it can, it's also possible that you can enjoy it and receive life from it because of the Spirit. He will produce this in you. Verse 21, Paul's now starting to get into the marriage territory. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ladies, the only way your heart will warm to the idea of joyfully and willingly submitting to your husband's imperfect leadership, because it is, all of your husband's leadership attempts are imperfect. Sometimes they're just straight up absent. But when they're expressed, even with, pure, with almost pure motives to love Jesus and to love you, it's still going to be imperfect. And so the only way your, your, your heart will warm to this idea of joyfully and willingly partnering with and submitting to your husband's leadership is for your submission to a flawed man to be rooted in your reverence for Jesus, the only perfect man who's ever lived. And that's where, exactly where Paul is going with all of this. He says, wives, chapter five, wives submit. Paul is calling you back to the Imago Dei within you. It's not new. It's not a result of the curse. He's actually calling you back to that life-giving river to embrace the Imago Dei in you. He's saying you're created for this. This is one of the primary ways that you express the Imago Dei in marriage. It's one of the clearest ways you image Christ to others. Uh, One of the marriage books that I love to share with people, written by Betty and something, Ricciucci. 
I don't know her husband's name. Uh, Betty's chapters are so good. And she writes this. She says, to submit with joy to her husbands is to be like Jesus, who himself submitted joyfully to the Father. So ladies, in your submission, part of the sacred way you embrace and display the Imago Dei is you are pointing to Jesus' own submission to the Father. And that is absolutely life-giving. Now, when I send my notes out to the ladies... One of them, or maybe it was in a conversation. I think it was in a conversation. One of them's like, yo, uh, uh, message on like women, marriage, Imago Day. We talk about submission. You don't ever actually talk about or say specifically what is submission. Like, well, that's a really good point. And this is why I emailed out, emailed out my notes. So here we go. Submission in marriage is to recognize, embrace, and affirm your husband's God-given role and to joyfully and willingly partner with him in living for God's glory and the good of others. Submission to marriage is to recognize, to see it as beautiful. God gave this to us as a gift, to embrace it with uh, your, your heart, your mind, your soul, your will, your emotions, uh, your physical energy gladly, and to affirm your husband, not just to affirm it in your soul or in your mind, but to speak affirming words to him, like, I know God created this as the design, and I know we struggle at it, but I know it's beautiful, and I want it and I want to walk in this direction, affirming him and affirming him in his leadership and to joyfully and willingly partner with him in living for God's glory and the good of others. All right. So all this talk about what submission is, some of us really need to hear what biblical submission is not. So let me give you a few, a few ideas that were written down. Biblical submission is not a universal command. Notice Paul says, ladies, submit to who? He uses a possessive, pro- your, you something of yours, your own husband. That's all he's talking about, ladies. Christians um, who rightly understand the word do not believe that submission is a universal command. Ladies, Jesus is not asking you to submit to other men, your husband. Um, He's calling you to submit to your husband's God-given leadership, period. Just put a period at the end of the sentence. But actually, I don't want to because I want to say something to the single ladies. Your husband, I mean, your boyfriend... Um, is not your husband, and he does not have the God-given grounds to demand um, this submission from you. If he does, it's probably time for a new dating website, because I know that's how we all date now, right? Kill the account, go black for a little while, go dark, um, recreate, and get off Christian Mingle, and go to like farmers.com or whatever some of the other cooler (laughs) ones are, right? Just do that. However, let's say on the flip side of the coin, ladies, like if he's demanding that in dating, it is not going to go well in marriage. Not gonna go well. But let's flip that coin. If he's like so passive that you would actually like for him to like step out a little bit and initiate and lead, um, that is also gonna go real badly in marriage. Because you think you have to ask for it now? Once, once the ring is on, it, it, is, it is not going to go well. Um, but guys, biblical submission is not a universal command and boyfriends do not have that God-given uh, role in your life. Uh, biblical submission is not a call to silence. Ladies, you need to speak what is on your soul, on your heart, and what is on your mind. You need to confront your husband when, when needed. Jesus actually calls you to this and your husband needs your voice. You are most intimate with him. You're in closest proximity to him. You speak the greatest honesty to him. Other people will flatter when you can say true words in love and in grace, and in humility. But you have a front seat, you're, you're right there. Um, so ladies, in grace and in humility, you have a sacred role to speak true and life-giving words into your husband's life. Um, biblical submission is not a signal of weakness. Kathy Keller 
uh, who, along with her husband, wrote Meaning of Marriage, writes, submission is how you bring your strength to the table. Biblical submission is not a requirement for absolute agreement. You don't have to agree with him on everything in order to follow his lead. Uh, You may need to hold some of your preferences and convictions with an open hand, but you still need to hold them. They're yours, and you should have them. Biblical submission is not an opportunity for male dominance. Just the opposite. Biblical submission is an opportunity for men who love Jesus to show that leadership and authority by, do- by God's design are meant to be used for the good of others and not self-advancement. And just one more. Biblical submission is never, ever, ever a justification for abuse. Sadly, many of us are aware of stories or we've been a part of communities where people who have the title pastor but should not because they're not qualified or a church that really should not be called a church because Jesus is not there and the gospel is not present will receive a woman's cry for help and she'll express, I'm being abused and the only counsel that will be offered is, I'm sorry, um, but you need to submit, you need to go back. Um, Jesus calls you to submit to your husband and that is just not true. We would never counsel a woman to remain in an abusive relationship because of God's command to submit to her husband. Abuse violates the marriage covenant and stands biblically as grounds for separation and even divorce. All right, so biblical submission is not those things, and let's just get it on the table. We could just keep going, right? We could have a hundred different statements, but uh, we don't have time for that right now. Paul presses on. He says, wives, you should view your submission as an act of obedience to Jesus. This might be, might be our most important statement here. Wait, uh, wives, please, please hear this. Submission is a duty, a responsibility, a command. It's a duty that you owe Christ, not your husband. Joyful submission is a gift that you give to your husband from a willing heart as the result of submitting to Jesus, not the other way around. That's what Paul means when he writes, ladies, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He's not saying submit to your husband in exactly the same way that you submit to Jesus because we all know that your husband is not Jesus, nor is he anything, well, hopefully he's something like, but here's Jesus on that side of the room, and here's all the men over it to include my, like, we're way over there. There's a serious gap. There's a serious gap. Um, Jesus deserves our absolute submission in all things. That goes for men and women. We don't submit to anyone in the way that we absolutely and fully submit to Jesus. That'd be dangerous. It'd be naive. You're going to be hurt, disappointed. One of our ladies wrote this, and her husband knows that she wrote it. As a fallible man, as an imperfect man, my husband is never going to be able to deserve my trust completely. Now, that's really true. But I can trust our infallible God and through that, submit in the role of helper as an act of obedience to Jesus. That's a really helpful statement. Ladies, here's what Paul is saying. Submission is rooted first in your love for and allegiance to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, not your husband. Secondly, your submission is rooted in God's creative design for your husband. Again, not your husband, but God's creative design for your husband. Paul writes this in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
The word head that's applied to Christ and husbands simply means the one with God-given responsibility and authority to lead. You can't be given responsibility without authority. You don't even give your kids responsibility without authority. If you go tell your kid to clean the toy room, he now has authority to go in there and say, I'm here to clean the toy room. Either help me or please move out of the way, right? They're always paired together. So in headship, God has given responsibility and authority to lead. Biblical headship points to authority and service. That is the role entrusted to your husband, ladies, for your good. So just as the church gladly embraces Christ's um, God-given headship, you too are called to embrace and affirm your husband's God-given responsibility. Um, Kind of working through that part of the notes, one of our ladies wrote, and I really appreciated this because she says what the rest of you would say or would want to say. She said, when we were dating, and isn't that the first line all the time? When we, when we were dating, um, I thought I would gladly submit to him in everything. She had just finished affirming his character. So she said, when we were dating, I thought I would gladly submit to him in everything if we married each other because of the character I saw in him. Now that we're married, and isn't that the hinge that the conversation always turns on now that we want, before we were married, now that we're married, she writes, I can gladly submit to him sometimes, honestly. Other times though, when things between us get really tense or tough, I really struggle to give him the gift of submission. So being reminded or rehearsing that submitting to my husband is ultimately not about him. It's submitting to Christ. That motivates me to let go of my pride and willingly place myself under my husband's authority, knowing it's the safest and best place to be since it's God's perfect design. But let's be honest, ladies. Some of you are really struggling with this whole idea right now, like just the word submission, the idea, thinking about it. And the struggle is not even necessarily your heart right now. Like you kind of, you want this type of relationship with your husband. You want him to image Christ. You want him to love you in all the ways we talked about last week. And you want this for yourself. So it's not that you don't want to honor Jesus. You do, but it's your husband we're talking about. And so you're sitting there asking yourself and you wish you could raise your hand maybe and say it out loud or um, say it offline. What if my husband's heart is cold toward Jesus? What if his heart is cold towards me? What if he's unloving? What if he's disengaged, disinterested, uncaring, wounding in his words, not pursuing me, not noticing me? That's where Peter comes in. And when I read Peter, I hear Peter's words in the voice of an old, gentle grandfather whose life has been shaped by the gospel, sitting at the kitchen table with his stained coffee teeth and his steaming cup of coffee, gently giving relational advice to his son and his daughter or his grandson and his granddaughter. And ladies, here's what that gentle, gospel-shaped, grandfatherly Peter says to the woman who's asking all these questions. Peter writes, likewise, and man, I wish we had time, but we don't. Likewise points back to chapter two. And you know what's going on in chapter two of First Peter? Peter's talking about the way Jesus willingly submitted to the Father and suffered at the hand of cruel people. And so Paul said, Peter's saying, likewise, lady, in the same way that some of you are willing, willingly submitting yourself to Jesus and suffering at the hands of your husband, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they're not that husband. They're not loving Jesus. They're not loving you. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Ladies, 
When you obey Jesus, giving the gift of willful and joyful submission to a less than deserving husband whose heart is cold with self-absorbed rebellion, you bring the warmth of the gospel into the cold winter of his soul and you bring the light of life into the dark night of his heart. You bring an inescapable gospel presence to him face to face. You bring the only thing that has the power to soften his hard heart and win him back to Christ. You bring him face to face with the gospel. Persevere in this. Don't grow weary in doing good for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. Keep submitting to Jesus and entrusting your less than deserving husband to Jesus' care. And that's why Paul concludes his paragraph on marriage with one final command for wives. Verse 33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ladies, your husband won't live every moment worthy of respect. There may be prolonged seasons where little about his life or character is respectable, but the role our father has called him to is always worthy of respect, whether or not he is. And so one of the most life-giving things you can do for your husband is to pray that God inclines his heart to love and lead you like Jesus in a respectable way. And as you are waiting on Jesus, you pray for your own heart that God would incline you to show respect to your husband, especially when he doesn't deserve it, so that, so that, through your example, you can gently and winsomely expose him to the love of Christ and the gospel and without even words, beckon him, call him to rise up to the Imago day that's been created in him. So ladies, closing with this, where your husband fails, I implore you to run to Jesus. He is the only perfect God man. Every other man in this room is desperately flawed. Jesus is the only man you can fully trust. Run to him. Where you fall short, run to Jesus. You are not accepted by Jesus because you perfectly submit. You are accepted by Jesus all through grace because, listen, where you fail in your partnership and submission to your husband, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father in partnership and submission on your behalf. And so you're accepted because of Jesus' submission on your behalf, not because you're an awesome wife. You're accepted by grace. Run to Jesus. He shows mercy. And where you need to grow, run to Jesus and run to other women in our family. They will help you as the spirit too is your helper. So the writer of Proverbs, I just got to tell you this, and I'm glad for ladies' feedback. My original sermon notes included all of Proverbs chapter 31. That's part four, and that's where we were going. Because I just wanted to show you, like all this talk about partnership and submission, you know what the wife in Proverbs 31 is getting after? She's killing it, getting after her family. Like she is pursuing them and providing for them. But you know what else she's doing? She is actively pursuing care for her family and other people in the marketplace um, in an amazing way. But maybe part two sometime part two sometime. But in Proverbs 31, the the, the author asks this question, an excellent wife, who can find? Not saying that they don't exist, but he's just saying, when you find one, you have found a really beautiful gift. He says of her, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Ladies, I just want to say, I said it to the ladies in the first hour, there are many excellent wives in this room who are actively working to submit to Jesus and partner with their husbands. 
Ladies, I want to thank you for giving the gift of your joyful obedience to Jesus to our family. It is a priceless gift. It is an irreplaceable gift. And the life-giving benefits of the gift you give by obeying Jesus has a ripple effect down through generations that you will not see in your lifetime. But it is the most beautiful expression of the Imago Dei in it. And as you submit to Jesus, ladies, you are just absolutely killing it in this area. Even in the struggle, it will always be messy and imperfect. It's by faith. It's by faith. You express the Imago Dei in so many beautiful and life-giving ways for our church family. So I just want to say thank you. I love you. I have deep respect for you women. And I have an exceptionally high view of the sacred calling that Jesus has created you for and called you into in the Imago Dei. A high, high view of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good design. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us out of the brokenness. Thank you for sending your spirit to help us and recreate the Imago Dei in us, Father. For those ladies who are hurting, struggling, guilt-ridden, shame-covered, Father, sweep them up into your embrace. Um, Pour out the grace of your gospel into their souls this morning. Set them free from the burden that they are carrying. Father, set them free to know the joy of submitting to Jesus and being set free from Uh, whatever is weighing them down in marriage or in the struggle with the Imago Dei. Remind them of your love for them. They are deeply loved daughters, Father, because of Jesus. And Father, where our community does not have a high enough view of women, not a high enough view of wives, of the Imago Dei in women, Father, convict us and, and heighten our view, increase the high view that we should have of the sacred beauty of the Imago Dei planted into the souls of women. Father, help us to love and to serve and to esteem well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.